0: Good evening. I'd like to welcome you all to this one-off Gresham College lecture entitled Leadership Lessons from Lockdown. The coronavirus crisis has been a devastating pandemic, but one of the small silver linings has been the great responses that we have seen from both companies and individuals. Now, I've already given a one-off Gresham lecture on the responses of companies. It's entitled How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, and you can find that on the Gresham College website. It accompanied the launch of my new book called Grow the Pie, which itself was based on my first series of Gresham College lectures. So today what I'm gonna do in another one-off lecture is to focus on the responses that individuals have been given. And I think this is important because if indeed the crisis is to have the silver lining, then what we want to ensure is that the responses by both companies and individuals outlast the pandemic. So my goal here is to provide a framework to encapsulate what I have seen to be the best ways in which citizens have responded. And in fact, many of them echo many of the principles that we've discussed in my current Gresham College lecture series, which ended two weeks ago. It's entitled Business Skills for the 21st Century. And during this lecture, I will refer to some of those lectures in case you'd like to um, go into them into further detail. Now what I'm doing is I'm going to um, divide this into six disciplines. So there's six disciplines that I believe we can take away from this lockdown. Now I use the word discipline quite deliberately. Now discipline often has negative connotations about something being imposed externally by a teacher at school, but actually the word discipline comes from the word disciple. And disciple emphasises the importance of learning. So these are behaviours that we can voluntarily adopt and should adopt. We don't need external pressure to do so. And I'm going to divide this into two categories. One is going to be called the power of individuals, what we can do ourselves. And the second is the power of citizens. So what we can do to help those around us. And before I begin, the one unifying theme behind all of these six disciplines is what I call agency. So this is humans' capacity to act and influence their environment. Right, it's really tempting to think that in a major pandemic, it's only governments or large companies that can respond to it. But in fact, its individuals can have a much greater effect than we think. And this is the goal of this lecture. Okay, so let me start with the first discipline under the category power of individuals. And that is contentment. Right. So the pandemic, one thing that it did highlight was many gifts that we have that we often take for granted. And why do we take them for granted? Well, the psychological studies which show that once we're used to something, it stops providing pleasure or it stops providing pain. So even if you live in an amazing house or have an amazing job, after the first few weeks, the glamour of that house or that job, that wears off. And it's true on the downside. So some citizens who've been really unlucky and unfortunately suffered the loss of a limb or another severe injury. Yes, this is hugely painful after maybe months, but then they actually are able to adapt to it and still live healthy and fulfilling lives. And so why indeed we don't have contentment and a lot of us sort of grumble is that we are given a lot of gifts that we don't realise. And so one thing that the coronavirus has highlighted is some of these gifts because we've taken a step back and realised that these are things that are truly gifts rather than things that we should take for granted. So let's give a few practical examples. So one of them is job security. So many of us, and I'm certainly in this category, there's so many things that we can complain about in our jobs. But the crisis, when we were seeing unfortunately other citizens who, who are furloughed or those who are self-employed or, or freelance really struggling, then those of us who are lucky enough to have a secure job, we're appreciating that so much more. And the main DB people who might have unfortunately lost income, in this crisis, but still have some financial security and be thankful for that. So, for example, I, for the last two years, have been working as a consultant for a large investment firm, working on a responsible investing strategy. So that gives me a lot of personal fulfillment, as well as being financially attractive. And that was terminated. So I lost that. Why? Because the fund has suffered during the crisis. And um, not only have I lost that, Uh, I launched this book a couple of months ago and all my book launch events have been cancelled because of the crisis. So sales have have gone down and the income that I might normally get from speaking at conferences, that's all plummeted. It's pretty much zero. But on the other hand, I still have a job, which is my job as a professor at London Business School. And so even though all of those income sources have gone down and even though my portfolio has gone down because of the the fall in, in the markets, I'm still lucky to have some financial security. And so while I might feel tempted to be upset at all of these losses of income, I'm sort of, I think the company made the right decision. Because had they not got rid of me, they might have had to get rid of a full-time employee whose only source of income was working for this company. And so that made me grateful, even though I've I've lost uh, that consulting assignment. The thing here might seem strange, what do I mean by ability to outsource? So there are many of us here who are able to do things from the comfort of our own home. So we can order, say meal kits to be delivered to us where they give you the ingredients in the correct proportion and so on, or just to have your groceries delivered, or it might be to have a housekeeper and so forth, or just to order something like online and have it delivered. But we take that for granted now because it's so easy, but for some of us, it might have only been a few years ago that we had to go to a shop and buy it ourselves. So that the ability that we have to outsource the acts of shopping and have things delivered for us, right, we take that for granted, but it is something that we are particularly thankful for now. Now, all of those three things I mentioned, right? they are quite functional things so about money and, and efficiency. But what about other things that we often take for granted? So this might be time spent um, having meals. So sometimes we, we feel we, ha- we see meals as things that we eat on the tube from meeting to meeting. And food is just fuel. It's just something that powers us through our afternoon meetings. If we could just give ourselves an injection and, uh, and fuel ourselves, some of us would probably do that for time management. But now what this allows us to do is to have meals with family at home and, and to savour every bite. Or perhaps to be on a Zoom call with friends and be always present rather than worrying about we're catching a flight the next day and we need to pack. And so in a, a famous book by Dr. Spencer Johnson, he, it's called The Present. He says the best present you can give yourself is the present. Right, So there's so many things that we could be grateful for, but we don't because we're rushing off between different things, friends and meals, or even able to listen to a piece of music or a song without texting at the same time. Right, Now that things have slowed down, now that we have time because we're not commuting to work and so on, we're able to appreciate these things. And I think the goal post-pandemic is to continue to do that going forwards. So how do we apply? This idea to after the pandemic, I think it is to recognise that contentment is a discipline. So we often are tempted to think that contentment and happiness, it just happens to us. But in life, we have happy people and unhappy people and happy people were just lucky. They were born into a wealthy family or in the job. They just got the promotion or they invested in a stock and it just happened to go up and unhappy people are just unlucky. So if that's our view, it's quite fatalistic. We have no control over contentment. But by emphasising that contentment is a discipline, but we have control over this ourselves. So just like we could choose not to panic in this pandemic and and be happy, we can do this in daily life right? when there's lots of uncertainty around us. So my favourite business book, which I've referred to a lot in the um, Business Skills series, is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And he says, between stimulus and response is our power to choose. Right, a stimulus happens, maybe we don't get the promotion. There's our response. We might get angry and sort of um, maybe quit the company. But we have the power to choose our response. And that power is, to be tautological, extremely powerful. And so we can just choose to respond in a different way. Now, what are you saying to me? Are you saying that sort of, I can, we should just imagine stuff and dupe ourselves into thinking that we're happy when we're not? Well, I am in a way, but this is actually backed up by evidence is that there's a lot of scientific research showing that some happiness is, is synthetic, right? It's affected by our responses to circumstances. So why are there happy people and unhappy people in life It's not just because of luck. It's just happy people have learned to respond to circumstances in positive ways. And what this has led to is their brain being rewired in a particular way where um, you are always looking at the bright side. And I'm sure you know people in your life who are sometimes known as Debbie Downers, who in any situation they will find something to grumble, even if it's a, even if it's a great situation. The best holiday, they will find something to to worry about. And so, two people can be in exactly the same circumstances, and one will think about the good, the other will think about the bad. Why? because they are used to doing that, like They have always been practicing this discipline, and so their brain is wired in a different way. Now, there's a great TED talk called The Surprising Science of Happiness by Dan Gilbert, who talks about the one unique thing that humans have in their brains, which is much more developed than in any other animal, is the prefrontal cortex. So that is the part of the brain that can conjure up hypothetical situations. So that is why we know that liver and onion ice cream probably wouldn't be very tasty without actually tasting it. But that same prefrontal cortex can synthesise happiness by just choosing how to respond to particular situations. Okay, so with that in mind, how do we actually go about practising it? Well, there's different ways, and I'm just going to talk about a few ways, knowing that this might not apply to every single person. So one of them might be to, to write down at the end of each day three things that you're grateful for at the end of that day. And this could be in post-pandemic time, so we're back to normal life. And it might be that the day is a disaster from a worldly perspective. So maybe for me as a professor, maybe I, I get a, my, my paper rejected. But then there's a lot of things to be grateful for. So I'm lucky to have tenure, so my job security doesn't depend on me publishing papers. Um, I'm happy to be living in London, one of the greatest cities of the world. I'm, I'm happy that the fact that I can just turn on the tap and get water, there are millions of people in the world who don't have that luxury. So one could be that, just writing down what you're grateful for. The second thing, could be journaling where you just reflect over the past day and i think similar to the the gratitude list right just to reflect over the day that goes back to things that we might otherwise take for granted and then this process of introspection often realizes that we have many things to which we could be very appreciative a, a quite different approach to this is to practice the approach of presence so one thing i spoke about in my lecture time management in the digital age, is to try and get rid of digital distractions. So how we can do this? We can take email off our phone. We can take other social media off our phone. So I don't have Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, even though I could delude to myself that I would need that for, for, for my work. I probably could use them for work purposes, but I might be much more distracted. So whenever we remove these distractions and allow ourselves to be fully focused, That causes contentment to go up significantly. A couple of other things that I talked about in my lecture, finding purpose in your career, is, well, one of our main sources of, of satisfaction or dissatisfaction is our job. Now, whenever we get a new job offer, we're probably really excited. But then we start that job and then things go wrong. right? We don't like everybody we work with. The IT system is not great and so on. But one thing is just to never forget, The excitement of getting the job. Yeah, maybe the IT system is not perfect, but you are getting to work in this job, in this company that you really respect. And that's why you actually apply to them to begin with. And like when things go wrong, well, they are wrong in a job that you really wanted and are grateful to have. And related to that, I mentioned in that talk, think about the purpose of your career. So what I mean by this is by looking at the same task in multiple ways, right, you can actually um, view the task as much more meaningful. So there is this famous um, parable or story where there's three bricklayers who are asked, what are you doing? One of them saying, said, I'm laying bricks. Another said, I'm building a church. Another said, I am building the house of God. And we don't need to be religious to understand sort of the importance of that, is that one can see a seemingly mundane task laying bricks as contributing to a bigger purpose, which is building a church or building the house of God. And similarly, it might be that you are a junior analyst as an investment bank, which I was, and I'm going to give a personal example just to show this is real, not hypothetical. You are working on a PowerPoint presentation and it's 2 a.m. in the morning. And you think, well, what am I doing? I'm just doing this PowerPoint presentation. Or am I thinking, well, actually a client, a large company has come to my bank with a major problem. And they've asked us to try to solve this problem. And if we do, and we give them the best advice that could see that company um, that could see it sort of safeguard its long term future and therefore the future of all of its employees and suppliers. So what are you doing? It's not just a PowerPoint presentation. You are serving. Why does you're just giving advice to a major company? Or me, when I when I teach, right, sometimes I actually teach the same lecture six times at London Business School. I teach six dreams. And so I, what can I say I'm doing? I'm going through some slides. Or I'm teaching the future leaders of this world finance. And some of them don't like finance, but I want to show them that finance can be interesting and um, and, and important, even if they don't want to go into a finance career. Okay, so the second thing I'd like to discuss is the idea of the discipline of proactivity. Immediately when we had the pandemic, right, this caused maybe a lot of us to to panic, but we learn actually we could do stuff. So the pandemic, which we thought was going to affect our ability to work or see friends or to go to the gym, hasn't. Right. Because we realise quickly we, we could take charge. So in terms of work, we can get a lot done with webinars. And again, just to use a personal example, yes, all my book launches were cancelled, but I realised I could do talks on the book by webinar. And actually the webinar allowed me to reach other countries like the US and Asia, which I would have never been able to give physical talks at. And it's not just webinars just to market my own book, but there had been professors in the US who had seen my talks on purposeful careers and had told me, well, could you come out to Texas and give this to my students? And I wasn't able to do that when it was a physical meeting, but now with webinars, I'm able to do that. And I've given the same talk to secondary school students. Why? Because they're applying to university and what they choose to do at university is driven by what job they want to do eventually. What about moving to, to, to fitness rather than to, to a, a hobby, rather than work? Like many of us love to go to the gym or to play sports, but we quickly learn right we can take these classes. So there's Instagram online workouts. Now, some of us don't have weights. We don't even have bands, but there's ones where you only need your own body weight or just a toilet roll or just a rucksack with books or just a chair right people can be extremely resourceful if they indeed have this attitude of proactivity and what about those of you who who really want a fitness instructor to watch over you to make sure that you're not slacking well again the fitness industry has evolved and they're offering classes by zoom i myself like to run rather than just to work out at home but if i was to run around hyde park right i would just jog at the same slow speed But there are even running classes by Zoom. So I'm with um, a provider called Force Velocity Running, where you have a live trainer telling you via via your earphones when to sprint, when to jog and when to run. So even something like that, where you think you need a live coach, we're able to, to take charge about it. And let's move to other leisure activities. Right. So some families now do family quizzes every weekend. And these were families who otherwise would only meet once a year for Christmas, or groups of friends, right? They're now doing reunions via Zoom and that allows everybody to participate. So you might've all gone to university together, but only some of you are in London and normally you might meet for a drink. Now you can bring in the people who've moved to the US. Now, one other side, which I'm gonna talk about, which is quite different, is the fact that the pandemic has presented challenges as well as opportunities. But we can also be proactive about making people aware of our challenges. So I sent an email to a friend whose autoresponder said, I am working from home with children during the COVID nineteen shutdown. Given the circumstances, I will not be able to respond as quickly as I otherwise would. And that was just a great autoresponder, right? Just letting people know about his challenges so we don't um we don't feel they uh, we don't feel that we'll need to chase him up about it. So how can we apply this to post-pandemic? Well, it's almost tautological, right? We apply the discipline of um, proactivity by being proactive, just to recognise we are far more resourceful than we think we might. Right, Whatever we, we want to do, right, there's probably something where we can look it up on the internet and find a way to do this, right? It could be even be playing game nights. So let's say you like to play games with on um, settlers of Catan with some friends every every week, right? You can find that on the web. So whatever one wants to to take to to find out, if we have the attitude, we realize we have far more resources than we think we would. Now also proactivity applies to the power to develop skills. And I know some people have been using um, the the lockdown, uh, particularly if they might have been furloughed to develop skills themselves. Also, this is something that can apply to post the pandemic. All right, it's the idea that talents are not something that we're born with, but we can choose to develop. So it could be even a skill such as being a great seller, a great comedian, a great public speaker. Things that we think are hard to develop are innate, but they're not. And indeed, my last lecture, the growth mindset and the abundance mentality discusses that. But finally, just to follow on from my friend, the idea of the power to say no or to ask for help if you're overwhelmed is, I think, really important. So what the crisis has done is it has made it acceptable for people to say, well, I can't reply immediately. You know, I can't work on this. Why? I've got kids at home or I'm looking after a sick relative who's self-isolating or, or so forth. And in normal times, right, we should have the same power to do that. And um and you might think, oh, it's fanciful, but it aren't companies gonna completely change their mind now that we're after the pandemic. I don't think so, because unfortunately, some of the aspects, some of the consequences of the pandemic will be long lasting. Like we're probably not gonna go to a five days um a week in the office um any longer. And so people will always have the memory of the pandemic and the fact that we do have this life outside work, and it is in our power to let people know. About the other commitments that we have, so we might feel overwhelmed and overburdened at work, but it's often our fault, right? It's not that the boss has been sadistic; it's being sadistic. It's just that they may not know of all the other things that we have on our plate. It's our prerogative, and it's uh, it's incumbent on us to let them know. Final one is focus. So, what the pandemic has highlighted is what is important versus what is merely urgent. And I'm using the time management framework for my time management in the digital age talk. So business travel is is sometimes just unnecessary, right? Because we um, can do this by Zoom. Yeah, there is some which is lost from not having face-to-face meetings and maybe going for dinner or a drink with, with a potential client. However, there is quite a lot that we can get done with Zoom. And uh, this is something where actually, we might be able to have meetings with people from different geographies and time zones and show up to them not being jet lagged. What about internal meetings, right? So now with people working from home, we might have fewer internal meetings and some of them are often useless to begin with, right? So there might be meetings where senior executives are consulting with the junior staff, but they're not consulting, right? they're just telling you. And now we've realised, well, if they're just giving information, there's more efficient ways of doing that. You send an email or a memo. Or there might be meetings where people just ask questions just to be seen to be asking questions. They get scrapped. Right? we don't actually need that. And again, moving away from work, well, what is important to be calling family? So maybe you're having these weekly family quizzes, exercise and sleep, and we realising, well, these are the things that we should be spending our time on, not unnecessary business travel. So how can we think about this post-pandemic? Well, I think it is to apply this important versus urgent time management framework. Think about what is truly important and what is merely urgent. And it could be, right, that even business travel is, is unimportant. So I have a good friend who's a partner at a professional service firm, and he already, before the pandemic, had reduced the amount of meetings he's doing because he's committed to reducing his carbon footprint. And his meetings are with boards. So you might think, well, they're really senior and they're not gonna take no for an answer. I'm not gonna travel because of my carbon footprint, but actually some of them were. And so they were realizing that they could get just as good as advice, or maybe even better advice from this consultant because he was not needing to travel and therefore he was gonna be much sharper. Now I talked about in the time management lecture the idea of doing a reverse pilot. So a pilot is when we trial something and if it works, we continue. A reverse pilot is if we stop doing something and if there's no negative consequences, we can still stop doing it. For example, if it is that we would normally have a weekly team meeting, maybe we don't need to do that. No, no it's still important, obviously, for people to talk to each other, but do we need to have that always in a formal meeting? Well, maybe not, or maybe we could meet less frequently. Um, And similarly for business travel, that might not be so important. My profession, which is academia, we have loads of conferences, and that our carbon footprint must be massive, not to mention that the cost of doing this. But what we're realising is actually, maybe we don't need so many conferences, and if we have them, we can have them by webinar. Maybe even after the pandemic, let's do the reverse pilot, of sticking with webinars rather than going back to physical conferences. And if there's no negative consequences, let's stick with that regime. And you can apply the reverse pilot to your own activity. Let's choose to take email off your phone or Twitter and um, LinkedIn off your phone. Does anything happen negatively? Are you being out of touch with your emails? Probably not if you have emails, say, accessible on your iPad instead. So that concludes my section on the power of individuals, three disciplines, contentment, proactivity, and focus that we can practice to help ourselves in any situation. So now I'd like to shift gears and talk about the power of citizens, three disciplines that we can practice to help those around us. And the first is to change the atmosphere. So what we've seen in the pandemic is a couple of actions by some citizens which have had huge effects on the culture and the atmosphere many times over the actions themselves. So Captain Sir Tom Moore, he's raised millions of pounds through walking around his garden. But not only are those millions of pounds themselves hugely beneficial for the NHS, but they've ignited a nation, right? They've inspired other people to do their own fundraising, and so his actions have had a multiplicative effect. And then in a much smaller level, within our friend group, we might know of some friends who've, say, signed up to Spare Hand, which is an agency which enables them to um, do some grocery shopping for other people. And that then encourages us to think about, well, what can we do in order to help a wider society? So what I think is really interesting is the shift, because it wasn't that people were selfish before the pandemic and now became selfless after, during the pandemic. Instead, I believe that people were selfless all along, but are what I call the silent majority. They need to be activated. And it was a couple of actions by people like Sir Tom Moore, or maybe the person doing grocery shopping in our friend group, which created a tipping point and then activated the silent majority and led to the rest of us, doing selfless and altruistic actions. So this might seem a a corny analogy, but I really like it. It's to be the thermostat, not the thermometer, to affect the temperature rather than just to passively reflect it. and so this can apply in many situations. So in my first job, I was working for a large investment bank. And there we often think the atmosphere is really difficult, right? It's driven by people who only want money. They are cutthroat. They want to elbow the, out other people in order to get to the top. However, I actually thought, well, that's not the case for many people, right? The silent majority are choosing this job. Because it's really interesting, right? They like advising companies on their greatest problems. And it's complex. They're working with finance and accounting and strategy. And yeah, yeah, it is lucrative. But for many people, that wasn't even the first or even the second reason why they might have chosen that job. Now, I started as an analyst. So out of all investment bankers, the analyst is the bottom of the rung. But actually, there were still people who worked for me. Right. So there was my secretary, there was the IT staff, there was the print room. And perhaps the most abused department in an investment bank is known as graphics or creative services. So they are the people who you give them um, some markups on a presentation. You say, well, can you move this here and and, and make this differently and and draw these um, graphics? And they get so abused because often they don't do what analysts want them to do even though it's analysts fault, because they're often so rushed, they haven't explained it correctly. So when it was that actually Creative Services did a good job, I'd call up Creative Services help desk And I'd say, well, who did the last job? And they would say it was Juliet. And I'd say, well, can you put me through to Juliet? And they did. And I'd say, Juliet, this was a great job. This is what you did, which I thought was really good. Here, I didn't even ask you to do this, but you use your own initiative to create this, this graphic. And that I didn't do this in an ostensible manner, but it was just so the case that because I was so junior, I didn't have an office. So I was in the open plan. And then other analysts around me heard me do that and then thought to do it themselves. So this small action did create a tipping point and led to other analysts showing appreciation for their support staff. Well, there was another situation where uh, both me and another analyst, we were both first-year analysts, we were working in the chemicals uh, group within um, this investment bank, and um, there was our boss who was known as being um, a a really, really uh, harsh manager. And this boss uh, used to manage his employees by pitting them against each other to put them in competition so that they would work hard to beat the other person. So if the other analyst, who was called Sean, right? If he did a good job, this boss would send an email to me and Sean and he'd copy me on his email. that I was praising Sean to make me feel really jealous. And so if I did a good job, he would email me and then Sean would uh, see it uh, to make him jealous. Now, Sean and I never got together and said we're not going to act in this way, but it was more implicit. It might have been the first time. Maybe, I don't know who made the first move, but maybe one of us helped the other out on a task. And so then we just started to be collaborative. And so the atmosphere was an atmosphere when where normally it's cut you want to elbow other people, but we just implicitly decided to help each other. And other groups saw that, right they saw how well we got along. they sort of joked jokingly called us the Chemical brothers because there's a band called that and uh, it wasn't that sort of we were we'd call each other brothers, but the fact that we would just help each other rather than being um, in opposition that perhaps led other analysts to think, well, we don't need to be so competitive within our own group, be it healthcare or be it utilities and <laughs> more positive experience I had at Morgan Stanley was um when I was in my second year working in the financial institutions group, where um, I was an analyst and I'd done some work. Um, The vice president was looking at it. And there was also the associate who was in between us. And often the associates supervise what the analysts do. They're, they're, They're designing everything. And the analyst mainly executes because you're at the bottom. And the vice president said to the associate, Rodolf, this was great work that you did. And Rodolf said, no, actually, Alex did it all by himself. I really didn't orchestrate or architect anything. And I was really surprised by that because normally in these banks, you want to take all the credit for yourself. And um, and if I tried to take the credit when the associate had already done so, that would have just been sort of subversive. I would be going out of the hierarchy. So yeah. Rodolf chose to give me the credit and I remembered it. And then I thought, well, then when a first-year analyst did something for me, I would make sure that the boss knew that it was him or her, not me who'd done that task. And then moving on to something quite different, it's the idea of defending people in positions of less power. So in now in my job as a professor, right, we go to conferences, and in conferences people present their papers, and unfortunately there are some professors who like to be bullies, like the bully in the school ground where you get a lot of praise and a lot of power by being seen to bully everybody else. And there was one conference where there was a PhD student who was presenting and somebody asked an aggressive question from the audience saying that one of his assumptions was completely wrong. And so I came to defend him. I didn't do this sort of out of trying to necessarily just be helpful. I I just said as a statement of fact, no, no, that's incorrect, right? There was actually research which backs up what he's saying. And then this ex-PhD student has always remembered that. He's now a professor himself at a really top university. And I got an email from him a few years after that saying, you might not remember this, but the first time I ever met you was when I was presenting at that conference and I was attacked and you came to defend me. I've always remembered that, and I'm now trying to pay it forward with, um, by defending other people. And so again, that was a great example of something which was, I didn't think had much of an effect, but actually had a multiplicative effect in that now this, uh, now very respected professor is now acting in the same way himself. Now, at the time that I'm, I'm, I'm giving this lecture, these are obviously really difficult times with with, with the, 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 the protests against really bad treatment against the black community. And so this is why, also, even though this is not a business topic, I, I think it's incumbent on me to say, we also want to defend people who are the victims of abuse, be this racial abuse or sexist abuse or homophobic abuse. Is that often in these organisations, right? There's often, again the, the, the um, there is the silent majority who thinks it's unacceptable, but because they're silent. It might be people who are spewing out this abuse. And and sometimes they might not even be doing this in an abusive manner, but thinking it's funny and thinking it's banter. They might be doing this through emails, through WhatsApp groups, or or, or just in in person, through through words in the office. But then just to say, well, actually, um, this... This is this is not acceptable. This might be seen as this might be hurtful to these people. If you take them aside and just have a private conversation, right, often these people are not trying to be abusive, they think it's funny. And if you tell them, well, actually, this is is actually abusive and offensive, then they might change their behavior. And so there's another way in which we can change the atmosphere, even as only one person. If we're influencing people who are powerful because They're doing something with huge effects on other people, um, such as discrimination. That is something which can make a make a big effect. So the next habit, habit five, is on internalizing externality. So, So what do I mean by an externality? An externality is any effect that we have on other people that doesn't affect us. So that's what's called an externality. The impact is external to us. So what I mean by internalize externalities is to take this into account as if we were suffering the consequences. So we can think of negative externalities in the pandemic. right? So if we panic by or choose not to social distance, well, that could have consequences on people's lives. Right? So young people like, might think, well, we're not gonna get the coronavirus, or if we do, we're not gonna die from it, but we could be carriers. And so we need to take into account the fact that, okay, I would like to go out, but I'm not going to, because this could affect other people. And then the flip side, there's a lot of positive externalities, right? So what we can do is things like I mentioned earlier, running errands for other people by doing shopping, or we can um, do this through financial contributions. So one is obviously charitable donations, but there's other creative ways in which we can contribute. So one of my friends decided to advance purchase 300 coffees from his local coffee shop, and that providing them with some much needed liquidity, that could be the difference between them going under and them surviving. And one big source of positive externalities is words. So words are often seen as sort of soft compared to giving money, which is hard, or doing actions, which is hard, you're putting your money where your mouth is. But words, if they are sincere and not superfluous, can have a huge effect. Might say to an overworked delivery driver to say thank you for coming up and delivering this package to me on the fifth floor, rather than just dumping it on the ground floor, that could mean a big difference. And if we sadly might end up having to be in the hospital because of ourselves or relatives, to say a sincere thank you to an overworked receptionist or doctor or nurse, that can make a huge difference. So post-pandemic, we again want to think about the negative externalities that we can engage in. So going back to, say, any office situation, it could be that a senior banker asks a junior banker to do some extra work just in case it ends up being useful, but not thinking, well, what is the extra time and effort costs that I'm imposing on my junior staff? And in the rare cases that I was going to these client meetings, I was shocked by how rarely the presentations were open. Sometimes they weren't even opened at all, but they were just chit-chat. Or maybe if they were open, then the client would look through the first few pages and then ignore the stuff at the end and never look through the appendices. But sometimes right, bosses will ask for this extra work, a whole new analysis, just in case it ends up being useful because they call upon it in the appendix. So this just requires a mindset shift to think about ourselves: how much extra work are we calling, call, um, asking this person to do? Is it really worth it? Another thing which causes hugely negative externalities is sending email. I talked about this in my time management in the digital age talk. Is that often if we send an email, right, we we are asking somebody to do something where we ourselves could have looked up the answer. Maybe the answer is online. Maybe the answer is in a previous email that that person sent, but we just can't be bothered to do this. And for us, one of the huge time sinks is email. Right? We spend so much time replying to email ourselves so to have that same compassion. And think each time we send an email, we're imposing something on other people. So unless we want to say, which is very useful, please don't feel the need to reply to this email or this email is for information only, then we should try not to send it. But let's move to the positive side. So positive externalities, we're going to ask ourselves the question, what is in my hand? So what is in my hand asks, what are the resources that I have? My time, my talents, my finances, and how can I use this creatively to serve wider society? So why is that useful? Right, Helpful people are often people who, when you ask them for help, They'll help. Right. You're moving house and you want somebody to help pack or unpack and then they will do it. But that's that's helpful. But an even higher level is to proactively offer without people asking. Right. So this coffee shop never asked my friend to advance purchase 300 coffees, but he just chose to do so. And that's why I like this idea of what's in my hand, thinking creatively about what resources we have and how we can use them to serve others. And let me emphasize just the importance of of words here. So I think words are really, really important. Why? Because some people just may have a a backstory. People might have things going on in their lives. You don't know what's going on, but some words um, can just have a huge effect because of that particular backstory. And again, just let let me give a comment and and, and sort of authentic example, because it just happened to me today. Right. So I've been teaching this online class in Responsible Business at London Business School, and it's um, by webinar. And often with webinar, it's really hard to get feedback. You can't see students' body language. You don't have them coming up at the end of the lecture to say it was a good lecture. And often in situations of ambiguity, you always infer the most negative. Right. This is known as ambiguity aversion. It's been documented in psychology. So no news is often bad news. But there are many students coming up to me and the other professor I was teaching with and saying how much they really appreciated that class. And that was really I was really grateful for because there's some certain things that I'm going through at the moment where those words meant a lot. They might think, well, as a student or professor, does, there's a power imbalance here. Is it going to make a difference? No, because even in these perhaps asymmetric relationships, words can mean a great deal. And I'm going to explain why in in, in more detail in the final discipline. And that is the discipline of offering encouragement. So this I'm going to present very differently to the first five. So the first five I talked about pandemic and then post-pandemic, I'm not going to do about that here. So why am I talking about encouragement to begin with? So when I decided to write this um, lecture on leadership lessons from lockdown, people heard about this because I was chatting to them about it. And then they were saying, well, make sure you give an encouraging message. Right. The lockdown is is obviously difficult. Show off encouragement. But then I thought, well, what does the word encouragement actually mean? Well, a good starting point is what does courage mean? Because encouragement is to provide courage. Well, courage is the act of doing something that risks failure or risks a personal cost. It so maybe to stand up for somebody who's being discriminated against. So then what is encouragement? We often think encouragement is to say, rah, right, 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 you can do it. You won't fail. But no, if courage is to do something that risks failure, encouragement isn't telling them they won't fail. It's giving them courage to do something even though you might fail and even though it's costly. And so the encouragement means that you might fail, but if you fail, it's okay. And so for those of us who are in leadership positions in companies, like create a culture where it's okay to fail, where employees can experiment with something and if it doesn't work out, they're not going to have negative consequences. So there are companies like Intuit, a software firm, and Tata, the conglomerate, which provide awards for students that fail and for for, for employees that fail, but those failures are ultimately instructive. And part of this is to provide constructive feedback upon failure so that failure is seen as a learning or development opportunity. But we could also encourage people outside our own organisations. So as customers, we can encourage companies or or people that we're clients of to innovate. So let's go back to online fitness classes. So it might be that the first time that we um, buy some of them, maybe the tech fails. But if we say, well, that's okay, we don't complain about a few glitches, but then that encourages people to try something new. And if it's something new, then maybe the fitness instructor won't get it right the first or even the second time, but this is something where we want to encourage that innovation. And what I'm going to end with is the idea of self encouragement. So, a lot of things that I've talked about, a lot of these disciplines, proactivity, change in the atmosphere, they risk failure or they risk doing something which is personally costly, such as sticking up for somebody, right, we can get repercussions for that. And so, this is something I'm actually going through right at the moment. So, on Monday, I wrote this article in the Wall Street Journal, which said that companies should actually consider paying their workers and not firing their workers and prioritising their workers over paying dividends to investors. That led to a lot of hate mail, which I am currently still receiving. And some of it, you might think Wall Street Journal readers will will be professional, but some of it can be really hateful. So it's hurtful. Someone would say this is incredibly misleading and needs to be withdrawn immediately. Any person with a right mind knows it makes absolutely no sense. And it's quite frankly, a load of bull. Or others will tell me I'm part of some leftist conspiracy when, as you'll know from my lectures, I'm pretty balanced. Profits are important, but also purpose is important. And so actually, uh, I'm sorry to say like over the past couple of nights, I've been waking up during the night sort of thinking about this hate mail that I'm receiving, which is why the words that the student said to me at the end of my lecture today really, really meant a lot. And so what does this mean in terms of encouragement is to know that anything that we do, which is really going to move the needle and, and push the needle is going to be pushing against perhaps a creaky door. We will offer resistance whenever we do something which is truly innovative, because if we offered no resistance, right, it would just be doing what everybody else was doing or saying what everybody else was saying. So saying the same banter, which people find funny when it's not funny. And that's why you're not accounting resistance. So almost anything that you do, which is going to make a difference, will be going against the grain and will be risking failure or risking costs. And self-encouragement is to tell yourself, yes, you're going to do something risky. And yes, there might be a backlash, but that's okay. So throughout the lecture series, Business Skills for the 21st Century, I talked about errors of commission and errors of omission. Errors of commission is doing something which is then costly. So it might be standing up for somebody and then being chastised or writing this article and getting hate mail. And we often want to avoid errors of commission. But far worse is errors of omission, not doing something, not sticking up for the person who's being mistreated at work, or not saying something which is countercultural, which is maybe companies should prioritize their employees and So what we want to move towards if we're to offer encouragement is the importance of avoiding these errors of omission. So Gandhi once wrote, the difference between what we are doing and what we are capable of doing would solve most of the world's problems, but that difference arises from errors of omission and those errors in turn arise from lack of encouragement. Okay, so that's um, what I had to to share with you today, is six disciplines, three um, for individuals and three in our capacity as citizens, which I hope we can internalise and continue to practice after the lockdown, because if so, there will indeed be a a bright silver lining in that these disciplines will be ingrained. Well, thank you very much to everybody for for your attention and and for your support of this one off lecture. And also all of those who supported the entire Business Skills for the 21st Century lecture series. And indeed, this lecture did make reference to some of those earlier lectures. So if you'd like to read up on them or, or watch them, you can find the lectures and the transcripts on the Gresham College website. And next academic year, 2020 to 21, will be my final lecture series as the Gresham Business Professor. It's on the psychology of finance. So, how psychology will affect financial decision-making, the mistakes we make and how we might go about correcting them. And I think this is really interesting because it's going to be interdisciplinary. Hopefully we will be through the other side. And so I'll get to meet you and and thank you uh, for your attendance in person when when these happen. So thank you so much for those of you who've supported these lectures online. I know that it's not as exciting as being in the theatre, but hopefully we'll get to meet and do this in person once we get through the other side. Take care, everybody.